Hello, and welcome to Caper Confabs, a health professions podcast from Caper Interprofessional by Design. Confabs are informal conversations. Caper Confabs aims to talk about a wide variety of interprofessional education and practice issues together. So, confab with us. Our topic today is healthcare without walls, bringing healthcare closer to where people live and work through the use of -of state-of-the-art technology and a very well-prepared workforce. Healthcare Without Walls is the vision of the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation, also known as NEHI. NEHI is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization made up of almost 100 organizations from across all sectors of health and healthcare universities, healthcare organizations, biotech companies, insurers, regulators, and many more. My name is Jerry Lamb. I'm the founding director of the Center for Advancing Interprofessional Practice, Education, and Research. I want to acknowledge my colleague, Michael Moramarco, who is directing this podcast. We're very excited to have Susan Denzer, David Kuhn, and Donna Zaworski here with us today for this discussion. Susan Denzer is NEHI's president and CEO. She was just appointed a visiting fellow at the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy in Washington, D.C. She is a well-known thought leader on health and health policy and a frequent speaker and commentator on radio and TV. Susan served as senior policy advisor to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and was editor-in-chief of Health Affairs. David Kuhn is the Associate Dean for Research at the College of Nursing and Health Innovation. He oversees all of the research centers at the college, including CAPER, and is a national leader in care and caregiving for older adults. David's just about to launch a new center at ASU, the Center for Innovation in Healthy and Resilient Aging. Donna Zaworski is the Adult Administrator for Care Management Programs at Arizona Complete Health, a fully integrated Medicaid health plan in Arizona. Donna is a national expert in community-based care, care coordination, and case management for high-need patients and families. Welcome to each of you. We're delighted that you're here and pleased to be able to talk with three outstanding experts. Susan, I'm going to ask you to begin, and if you would, spend a few minutes telling us about Healthcare Without Walls how the initiative got started, and your vision for how it's going to work. Happy to do that. Thanks so much, Jerry. So at NEHI, the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation, we spend a lot of time thinking deeply about innovation. And as we were thinking about this topic several years ago, we came back to some obvious questions that many people have asked over and over and over again. So we were far from the first to ask these important questions. The first of those questions was, how come we still have a sick care system in this country and not a health care or even a health-inducing system in this country? Why is all the money tied up in sick care, and how is it possible to even think about breaking out of this paradigm? And the second question that we ask is, as we look around us, we see so much in the realm of information exchange that has changed in society in terms of how we exchange information with each other. So if we think about the kinds of virtual connections we have, 
most of our information exchanges in our daily lives now, most of them, not all of them, of course, but most of them occur virtually. We're emailing people, we're talking to people on the phone, et cetera, et cetera. And if you go to healthcare and think about the whole realm of healthcare that has to do with laying on of hands, that exists and it always will, and it should. If we're in a terrible car accident, we want to go to a trauma center and have people lay hands on us to get us better. But there's a whole lot of healthcare that is not about laying on of hands, that is really about exchanges of information. And yet the healthcare system is so frozen in the old era of you can't exchange information unless it's done in person. And the paradigm around the patient visit uh, continues to rule a lot of healthcare. And of course, as we know, payment is often the culprit. You don't get paid unless the patient is sitting right in front of you. So as we ask the question, well, what could the world look like if you took all of the components of healthcare that could be, that are around information exchange, and put more of them into the virtual context, not because you think there's something so ideal about doing it virtually, but just because you think that's practical, uh, and you think that there's a lot of friction tied up in the healthcare system that doesn't buy one iota of health, but creates a lot of this demand that the information exchanges have to be person to person in the same room. And you think about all the people who want to live their lives in the community don't want to spend time getting to healthcare appointments. You think about uh, the people who, for whom transportation is a barrier to getting to healthcare appointments. And really, that's almost everybody. <laughs> you know, almost everybody has a reason not to go and have a physical appointment unless it absolutely has to be a laying on of hand situation. So we put all of that together and said, okay, we know that these are important questions to ask. We see aspects of healthcare that are already drifting outside of physical settings because they can. We see that inpatient care is declining in the country. We see more and more care moving to the outpatient setting. And we see now the enormous capability to have a lot of exchanges virtually. And if we thought that that was all good, how do we move even faster down that path? That led us to create this project, Healthcare Without Walls, and essentially set before ourselves a vision of if by 2025 we threw into the healthcare system everything that already exists by way of technology, we don't have to invent a single new thing, we just have to make better use of what we already have telemedicine, telehealth at the top of the list, if we could devise a system that makes maximum use of those kinds of virtual exchanges and also makes maximum use of the kinds of people in the healthcare workforce who regularly touch people in the community, how could we put that together and create a true system of healthcare without walls? That was the uh, really the roots of our project, and then we set up a bunch of work streams to look at different aspects of what would need to change in order to bring that system about. You've raised so many interesting questions and your group has put on the table issues like how do we accelerate movement into the community? How do we really enhance health promotion, disease prevention, things we've been talking about for many, many years. And how do we take that piece of healthcare, which is a huge piece of healthcare, is information exchange and use technology that we already have more effectively and efficiently? 
So David, in your world of research and moving research into practice, how do you see research in general and specifically here at Arizona State University helping to accelerate the change that Susan is talking about? I think it can happen in a variety of ways. I think that I might start a little bit generally and think what's critical here is the opportunity to see what's working and for whom. What already exists, how do we better expand that? How do we draw from that? How do we learn from what's working? And who are vulnerable populations that we really want to reach, many of whom may be the uh, individuals that because of their work life, because of their family life, they end up in the ER or the urgent care when there may be another way to handle that situation um, earlier uh, because we only provide our provider visits at X amount of time during the day, which is not a day when you're a vulnerable person working multiple jobs trying to have uh, your world work and your family function effectively. So I think there's that critical component of seeing what exists, what tools are there, and how do we build and build out on that and think about the critical populations that uh, we could expand that with. What might need to be tweaked? So research, how, how can research help in the discovery of that to understand how do we tweak this for our aging population, for um, our underserved populations, et cetera? And then I think there are really critically important questions that we can learn from this too. What is the exciting mix of education and information, but then the need for behavior change? Because we know that education in and of itself for many situations is not enough. So how do we then, maybe in stepped care models, where a person is struggling with the information that they've given, or, or we as providers are uh, seeing that they're not really, it's not a hook for them, that wasn't enough for them. So, so what kind of coaching, what kinds of things need to be added on for those particular people that are not uh, doing as well? And then what really is, as Susan said earlier, um, I'm going to turn it just a little bit and say, what is the relative mix of high touch and high tech? Who needs that? When and how? And that, again, may be part of how we think about some kind of stepped care model that might work. I also think that there's really a, a very, very strong opportunity for us to think from community engagement models. So how do we go out into the community, present what is working in certain populations or in certain communities, and begin to get feedback about what needs to be tweaked in this system. How does it need to, to work for you and your family? And that might happen through town halls or whatever we may do. But I think there's research that can play a role in that so that we engage in a dialogue that further advances this. We have at ASU, to your other point, Jerry, we have people that are partnering with places like the YMCA that people are going to already, that families are going to, or the Y would like as a partner to have more people come into. And we have researchers that are looking at obesity in Latino youth and how to have them be more physically active and to prevent diabetes. We have people working in early childhood education centers 
building gardens to encourage physical activity and nutrition knowledge in three and four year olds and their parents and engaging them. So how do we take those kinds of things, build off of those opportunities and also infuse other kinds of, of health information and uh, behavior change opportunities that relate to healthier communities? That's great. Donna, my guess is you're sitting there resonating with all of this. So your day-to-day work is all about improving access to care in the community and making sure people receive value and have a good experience. So what's resonating for you right now in the conversation so far with Susan and David? Well, as I listen, I'm reminded that health happens in the community. And we have to build those systems in the community and the handoffs. We have to understand their, our, are the people that we're working with, their values, their beliefs, how the social determinants of health fit into that. How, you know, again, it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If we don't have good housing, good support, how are we expecting that person or that family to promote their health when they're surviving? You know, I I think back on uh, my childhood, living in rural Pennsylvania. If we got sick, we called the local nurse and said, what do you think? And that nurse would come to our house and say, this is what's going on. And, you know, you need to go see the doctor or you would go to the hospital or whatever. But, you know, we didn't think of illness. We just thought of, you know, we're home staying, staying healthy and we have somebody locally to make that partnership. It's creating those partnerships now and understanding how we need to expand on them. Working in a provider setting, I was able to build out diabetes programs in the primary care. So we talk about those models and the STEPPED program. Um, as we identify people who are higher risk in diabetes or they, they're experiencing more symptoms, we're able to then have, we were able to have the diabetes nurse educator, the dietitian in the office, the community health outreach worker. So they would help manage that member. Those that were most high risk, we would put them on telehome monitoring devices and then start monitoring them where the community health outreach worker could monitor their daily blood sugars. And not only would we call them and say, what's going on? We see all these fluctuations, but we could also say, hey, we're catching you doing something really good here. What's going on? Tell us what's working for you. So it's catching people in those moments when they aren't or are doing things to promote their health. At a plan level, now we're looking at how do we build those systems out more with the providers and with community providers. You're talking about peer support systems, navigators in behavioral health programs, community health workers out in in the federally qualified health centers or other health centers. How do we build those systems so that when we see members that are high risk, how do we help connect them and get them into these systems and hand off and make sure that those connections are happening at the right place? I know I've talked with hospitals, and one of the most frustrating things are they can put the best discharge plan together. But if we don't see that it's happening when they leave the hospital, when that person leaves the hospital, it's going to all fall apart. So how do we use telehealth in that situation to bridge that gap and connect that person with that primary care office or that community health outreach worker while they're still in the hospital? Making that and building that relationship and then handing that off. That's where I see our vision of where we need to keep moving, maximizing technology, and we can do that today. We can do that in health plans. We can do that in health providers. But it's working out the right relationship and the right payment model that'll help support that. 
Donna, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about much of the vision of healthcare without walls is already possible. Let's talk a little bit about in your world where you're creating these systems that you talked about. Who are the people that we're going to need for this? What are the implications for preparing health professionals, community workers? Who do you need? As I've looked at provider systems and the health plan systems, there are certainly regulations, compliance issues that we all need to keep in mind. So we definitely need people that are licensed and that can work at the top of their license, whether they're a social worker, whether they're a nurse, whether they're the physical therapist, the nurse practitioner. They need to be able to maximize their skills by delivering to the most complex of members. Whereas I will be using program coordinators, community health outreach workers, people who are trained as behavioral health specialists but may not be licensed, that are going to be working with more of that moderate member that are going to be reaching out and perhaps doing more of the groundwork and doing that engagement with that member to work on getting them into healthcare, into healthcare systems. I'm finding that we have a lot of people doing a lot of different things. I need to make sure that we're using the people at their highest level of licensure and skill set and where best to have them. Are they better in a primary care setting? Are they better in a peer support organization? Are they better in that federally qualified health center where they have that multidisciplinary approach? Where best to put them and then how to utilize that technology? So I'm learning that the community health outreach worker can certainly handle telehome monitoring devices. They're put in guidelines. They're able to then set up triggers of when do they need to elevate it to the provider, to a nurse educator, to a dietitian, making those handoffs. But they can really manage that, understanding those trends that are going on. That's the other piece is the professionals need to be able to not look at just what's happening in front of them, but trending out and understanding what's going on with the population and where best to utilize that then. So those are some of the things right now that I'm working on and, and being faced with is how best to utilize the, the workforce that I have and leverage the workforce that is out there in the community, whether it's in those primary centers, the hospitals, or the FQHCs or the peer support um, organizations. How can I leverage those to create that system of care for the members that so desperately need those appropriate handoffs and relationships? So in our project, we looked a lot at some of the structural issues that we're all contending with as we think about preparing a workforce to live and work in a world of healthcare without walls. So one major issue, frankly, is that in schools of health professions education, a lot of the people doing the teaching have been out of clinical practice for a long time. And so what they're teaching really lags the changes in clinical practice. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is so, in so much of uh, medical training and, and health professions training now, we're still training people in hospitals, even as care is drifting out of hospitals. Residencies happen in hospitals, and the likelihood is that only a small fraction of the people we're training in medical residencies are going to end up practicing in hospitals. So what sense does that make in this day and age? Then we have the fact that there's very, very little team training, and we know that team care will be the way care is delivered and not and you can add to no team training no virtual team training you can count on two hands the schools where people are being trained in team-based virtual care delivery 
And then we have other structural issues that I don't know how the country will work its way through, but Donna, you mentioned licensure. So we know huge issues, particularly for nurses and nurse practitioners around uh, scope of practice. That's a major, major barrier that needs to be addressed. But then even beyond that, licensure, why are we licensing people state by state by state (laughs) in an era when people are moving around all the time, number one, are going to be practicing care across state lines, often are doing that already in certain metropolitan areas of the country. And we have just essentially, if you step back, what we have created in this country is a series of barriers that makes the number one cost input in healthcare, which is labor, guarantees it will be used as inefficiently as possible. So we have created these major structural barriers that are completely out of step with the way care ought to be provided, number one, and number two, are costing us in real terms and not just financial terms, but costing us in terms of preventing actually good care from being delivered the way it should be delivered in this era. And I guess I would just add maybe a question for you, Donna, is that part of the frustration I think a lot of us that are working in what I might call the social health system, uh, those people that are not, that are working in organizations that support health and social services, things from the area agencies on aging to uh, cancer societies, that the handoff is still such a problem. And as critical members of a team, how can we work to close that gap to do a better job of um, having that handoff happen or have people seen as part of a team because what I see happen over and over again is that organizations on both sides of the house decide to recreate what doesn't exist when their organization that is sometimes almost right across the street. So how can we how can we break that barrier? What can we do? What I've seen is creating the partnerships. Some of the barriers is the ability to communicate with electronic health records, that whole ability of of being able to, um, you know, do Zoom visits into a hospital from a health plan. I mean, we're working on that piece, and each one of those has a different barrier. I know that some of those social agencies we bring into integrated care team meetings, um, but again, it's, it's a matter of somebody has to be skilled to orchestrate that and make sure that those partners are at the table and making that happen. And I'm thinking of an example where um, someone may be out in a situation where we don't have the right person to connect with that member. We use the Area Agency on Aging to go and make that connection. They fit the right criteria. It's knowing that criteria that all these different agencies have that can help, understanding those resources so that you can bring them in and know when to bring them in. It's a matter of making sure you always get the teams together to sit down. I've had, um, because I'm out in the community, I am community. I bring community in. How do we create more people that understand community to bring community in? Because you're right. Most places feel that they need to be doing it themselves. They have their own contained systems. They have their own contained telehealth systems. So to try to go into that, it all of a sudden creates discord, and they're not sure how to make that work. 
And it's got to be people who can go in and say, well, let's sit down and take a look at this, and how can we make this work? And it takes a little time, but you work through those steps. And this comes back, from my opinion, to the importance I know that CAPER is doing and is looking at that interprofessional and interdisciplinary teams also move across organizations. And I think people are not trained um, in any of their any of their academic training to think that way. And we have got to figure out ways forward because it's also a cost issue. Why are you recreating? I've seen this over and over in an organization. Why are you building something within your organization where you are hiring people, you're doing all of this additional work to develop something when it exists less than two miles away? It makes no sense. And it confuses patients and caregivers. It confuses patients and caregivers over and over again. We, in our work on our Healthcare Without Walls project, created a a series of scenarios. How would patients in various, and we actually prefer the word people, how would people in various situations coping with various health conditions like to be cared for? And these were hypothetical scenarios, but I think we came up with some realistic ones. A low-income pregnant woman who, in order to get to a uh, prenatal care appointment, would have to take a day off from work from her low-wage job with no sick leave policy in place to take several bus rides to get to her, her OBGYN appointment. How could you think about doing this differently in a way that really has her at the center, really supports her? Let's say she's also at risk for preterm delivery. How would you think about really what would you put around her that would support her in that pregnancy? Almost nothing that the current system is delivering her is organized in that fashion. It was really useful for us to start to really put ourselves in the minds of people and patients and think, what collection of supports on the workforce level, particularly around people in the community, in in the case of this low-income pregnant woman, a doula, who was her constant contact over the course of her pregnancy, maybe sending her home with a handheld ultrasound device that can be attached to her smartphone. And by the way, most patients have smartphones, right? So it's not really even thinking about really exotic technology that we can employ in these new care arrangements. And thinking in those terms, we were able to come up with many, many situations where if you configured these systems around people as they live their lives day in and day out in the communities, there's no question in our minds, but you wouldn't get to better care and better outcomes. Isn't that the definition of person-centered care that we all seem to be talking about right now and have such challenges implementing? I think we could have this conversation for the rest of the day, and and I know for me it's very exciting. The questions that you all are asking as well as the vision for how we bridge the gaps that we all see whether it be in the, in the delivery system, in the education system, policy, and so forth. I'd like to, to close with kind of an aha from, from what you were all saying, which is to be in the community, we have to bring the community in, and we have to do it in new ways with new technologies, and we need to look at how we're preparing a workforce to do this. And the questions you're raising about who will this workforce be to bring new systems together, 
to work effectively as team members, and certainly to do the research so that we have an effective and efficient system for, as Susan was saying, the people, not the patients, but the people who need healthcare services. Thank you all so much for a, a very thoughtful and provocative discussion. And I hope the people on the podcast really enjoy hearing about this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Caper Confabs. We'd love to connect with you and hear about your buzz, so please check out our website at ipe.asu.edu. Engage with us on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at caperconfabs at asu.edu. Don't laugh, David. We can't have fun. No, none.